This is Wide Margins episode 21, and we're calling this Monstrous Sin because I can't think of any other title for this. It's just going to be full of horrible, terrible things. So get ready. Should I do one of those disclaimers that this is not going to be good for children, or if you have children in the car, you might want to pause this and wait till they're gone. Um, it's in the Bible. So if you read the Bible to your children, you're not going to hear anything in this that they haven't already heard. We are in the epilogue of the book of Judges, and this is going to be the final episode on the book of Judges. We did it. We got through the whole book. I have enjoyed going through Judges this way, piece by piece, and getting a really detailed analysis of it. I've enjoyed these expositions of material that we usually don't go into in Bible classes and worship. It's been good for me. I hope it's been good for you. I hope that you've learned something. I know that I know a lot more about the book of Judges now than I did when we first began. So if it hasn't been valuable to anybody else, it's really been valuable to me. And I've really enjoyed it. And I hope to get the opportunity in the future to do another book like this uh, very soon on the podcast. Now, uh, also, I'd like to hear your feedback on that. I said that last episode. I really mean it. If you want to hear more series on books like we've done with Judges, let me know. If it's too um, monotonous, you know, if you like to break it up more, let me know. We can do, I, you know, I put a few episodes in between the Judges episodes to break it up. I could do that more often, or we could just plow right through. Uh, I will listen to your feedback and take it into account. So let me know. And you can do that several ways. You can uh, tweet me. Um, you can make comments on the website, widemarginspodcast.com. Uh, leave a review on iTunes. And uh, there are other ways. Many of you know how to get a hold of me. So let me know what you think. Now, what is this final part of the epilogue all about? We started the epilogue last episode pointing out that the epilogue is made up of two stories. The first story having to do with a man named Micah who built a shrine. Some bad stuff went on there. Even worse things go on in this second story about a Levite and his concubine. The point of this story is that when man takes over, things end end badly. I started to say end well. They don't end well. When man takes over and invents religion, as we saw in the last episode, and decides to make up morality on his own and decide his own ethics without God, things end badly. What we're going to see here is a concept Paul called the flesh in his letters. The flesh being mere human nature apart from divine influence. So it's always prone to sin and opposed to God. It's what Solomon styled life under the sun, without any recognition of anyone or anything beyond the sun. You'll see the characters in this story acknowledge God, but the God that they speak to is not the true God. It's a version of him. He may even speak back to them, but they think they're manipulating him and using him for their purposes just whenever it's convenient for them, they turn to God. That's not the kind of God we are called to serve in the Bible. 
remember the key verse. I know I've I sound like a broken record now, but this is so important to point out because of the way the narrator of Judges writes. He writes without judgment or subjectivity. He just puts it out there the way that it happened, and there's only a couple of points of comment uh, when he brings this premise up that in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. He used that phrase a couple times with Samson, but he begins wording it this way near the end of the book in the epilogue, and he does it in each of the stories of the epilogue. The first epilogue, you find it in 17 verse 6, and in this one, the very last verse of the book. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. When you do that, without divine guidance, without the revealed will of God from the Bible, things go poorly, to say the least. There's a proverb that goes along with this, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. And you'll see a lot of death and destruction here, simply because people took matters into their own hands without any regard for the will of God. Let's get started into this story of monstrous sin, chapter 19 of Judges. And we're setting things up here for the story by being introduced to a number of characters, as we usually are in these episodes. Judges is an anthology of a lot of different stories. It's one of the things that makes it so much fun and interesting. And we have some totally new characters here. One is a Levite who has been sojourning in, in the hill country of Ephraim. And he has married, or I shouldn't say married, he has a concubine from Bethlehem in Judea. Now, this is really interesting because there's some parallels to the Levite we were introduced to in the first narrative of the epilogue. He was from Bethlehem, and he sojourned in the hill country of Ephraim. And it makes you wonder, was this the same guy? I don't think he was. I don't think it's possible for that to be the case. But it's really interesting how those two characters tie together. And maybe they're the same guy. I'm going to say it's coincidence. But this Levite, he has a concubine. Now, he's, he hasn't married her. She's not his wife. A concubine is a slave. All right? So he is not moral enough or not um, honorable enough to take her as his wife. And that might have been part of the beef she had with him because it says in verse 2 that this concubine was unfaithful to him and she left him. Some people think that's adultery. Others think she just got angry with him. He did go to her father's house in Bethlehem in verse 3 to speak kindly to her. So it seems like they had a really bad argument, were separated for four months. He got lonely, started missing her, and went to her home to get her. When he gets there, he finds her father-in-law. He, Her father-in-law must have been a very lonely guy because he was really glad to see this Levite. He invites him in, and they spend three days together, eating and drinking, getting refreshed from the trip, catching up on old times, and then the Levite's ready to go. But on the fourth day, the father-in-law says, no, stay with me one more day. And after a lot of that, and we know we, we get this, you know, at family, you, well, I need to go. I got 
to get back to work. No, stay one more day. What's one more day? Well, I won't see you again for a long, long time. You have my daughter. Okay, we'll stay one more day. Fifth day, the Levite gets up early. He's ready to go. Father-in-law says, no, 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 stay. Eat with me. And he's doing everything he can to get the Levites to stay until it gets really late. And the father-in-law says, now, see, it's too late for you to travel. You might as well stay one more night. But the Levite has had enough. No, I am done. We are hitting the road. And we all know guys like this. You know, the dads who are pacing the floor. It's time to go. Vacation's over. Let's go home. I don't care what time it is. I don't care if we don't get home till 4 a.m. We are leaving now. Now, this sets the stage for some very bad stuff to happen. But he takes the concubine, and he has a servant and some donkeys, and they hit the road late. And it's very late when they finally get to a place where they need to stop but they find themselves in Jabus. I'm not sure how to say that, but it eventually becomes Jerusalem. This is very early in Israelite history. Jerusalem has not been captured by the Israelites. It belongs to the Jebusites. This is Jebus, Jabus, something like that. And it's not an Israelite territory. The servant says, Master, This looks like a good place to stop. He says, no way, I'm not stopping in a land of foreigners. We're going to go to Gibeah, and we're going to settle in Gibeah, which belongs to the Benjamites, our kinsmen. But they get there, and they can't find anybody who will take them in. Judges chapter 19, verse 15 says, They went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house, to spend the night. That's a sign that things are about to go off the rails. Hospitality is important today. We still should do it, but it was even more important in those days when people traveled a lot. There were a lot of nomads, a lot of people who were shepherds and owners of livestock that had to move around. It was a part of the culture in those days, and it was very unusual for someone particularly who was of the same tribe or of the same nation to come into a place and not be able to find somebody who would take him in. He encounters this old man who's also from out of town. He's in Bethlehem or in uh, Gibeah, pardon me, on business. And uh, he has a temporary dwelling of some kind. And he is also from Ephraim, the hill country. And he sees this poor man, his concubine and servant, out in the open square, Nobody inviting him in, and he says, you can come home with me and stay with me. So it's very late. They get to the old man's house, and I'm going to start reading because I don't want to put this in my own words. I'm going to read it just as it happened according to the chronicler of the book of Judges. Verse 22 of Judges 19, As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly, since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. So they're banging on the door because they want to rape the Levite. What happens next is even worse. The old man says, Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now, 
violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. Now, he doesn't know this Levite. The Levite is a stranger, and he's offering his daughter, can you imagine dads? He's offering his his daughter uh, to them to violate. And take the concubine too. Just don't take this man. How could you do this kind of thing? But the men wouldn't listen to him. So the man seized his concubine. This is the Levite doing this because it's his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her, that's a euphemism for gang rape, and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came, she still had a little life in her, and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. They were evidently having a good night's sleep, weren't looking for her, weren't worried. The next morning, her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the door of the house, he went out to go on his way. And behold, his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. She'd evidently been knocking on the door, trying to get them to let her in. And he said, Get up, let's be going. And there was no answer. And then he put her on his donkey. And the man rose up and went away to his home. This is horrible, right? It's terrible. It's hard to know what to say in commentary on this. I guess there's nothing that can be said. But I'm afraid to tell you that it gets worse if that's possible. The Levite's reaction is one thing. He evidently is angry about this, although he doesn't seem until this point to have any feelings for her. But his reaction, again, seems cold and ruthless because he takes the body of his concubine and he mutilates it he cuts it into 12 pieces and I don't know what kind of postal service he used but he sent her body parts throughout Israel 12 body parts for the 12 tribes of Israel limb by limb and the people saw it all over Israel they saw it and their comment is recorded in the last verse of chapter 19, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. As you would expect, what happened in Gibeah became an example of the worst kind of behavior. In fact, the prophet Hosea used Gibeah as an example in Hosea chapter 9 verse 9 when he says, speaking of his own people, they have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. And in chapter 10, verse 9, he says, From the days of Gibeah you have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued. Shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gibeah? Gibeah was like the place where the corruption of Israel began and continued unto, unto the days of Hosea. So the people of Israel remember this long after, even though we usually don't study this. When you see Gibeah, that's kind of a, a, a sign of bad behavior, of human moral ingenuity gone wrong. Now what happens? What's the fallout? The fallout is a civil war. 
So this is a tale that cautions us against immorality, but it's also told for historical reasons to explain some of the things that happen later on regarding the tribe of Benjamin. Again, I'll remind you, Gibeah is a city in Benjamin, so these were Benjamites who'd committed this atrocity against the concubine of the Levite who had been traveling from the hill country of Ephraim. An army of 400,000 gathers from all over Israel at Mizpah to decide what to do. And their first move is somewhat um, judicious. They ask Benjamin to give up the guilty people from Gibeah. Turn over the men who did this to this concubine and we'll take care of them. But uh, Gibeah doesn't want to do it, and the tribe of Benjamin doesn't want to do it. And so they decide to go to war. Benjamin puts together an army, and they have 400,000 from the rest of Israel. Here's how the army of Benjamin is described in verses 15 through 17 of Judges chapter 20. The people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men, who drew the sword besides the inhabitants of Gibeah, who mustered 700 chosen men. Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Every one could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. And the men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered, mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword, and all these were men of war. There's an interesting connection here that the men of Benjamin had this uh, elite force of 700 who were left hand who were left-handed and who were really good with a slingshot that reminds us of two Israelite heroes uh, Ehud and David Ehud interestingly was a Benjamite David was not but Ehud of course was a left-handed man now when we talked about Ehud it did not appear that he had the choice of being right-handed or left-handed uh, some, the language used there might indicate that his right hand was lame or withered up. And he couldn't use it, deformed in some way. And that made him a, su a surprise um, attacker. For I can't think of the word that I'd like to use there. Uh, on the other hand, this elite force of Benjamites, they, um, they were trained to use their left hand. Uh, some historians say that perhaps... As children, they trained with their right arms strapped down to their sides, so they became accustomed to using their left hand. And how about this, that they could sling a stone at a hare and not miss? That's pretty good accuracy. They were deadly with those slingshots. However, there were only 26,000 of them, and from the rest of Israel, 400,000. This is what I was trying to explain when we first started the series of judges Israel was not a united force there was often civil war and here you see 11 tribes against one Benjamin out there all by themselves but ready to fight you know no hesitation no fear it seems whatsoever and so the people of Israel go to Bethel to inquire of the Lord now this is interesting because there are references to the tabernacle being at Shiloh, which is in Ephraim, the big tribe from which Joshua came. But they are going to Bethel, which is just on the edge of Benjamin in south Ephraim, to inquire of the Lord. It 
probably is the case that the Ark of the Covenant had been moved from Shiloh down closer to the theater of war so that it could be nearby the Israelites as they prepare for battle. They go in and they ask the Lord, should we go up to war against uh, Benjamin? And the Lord says, Judah shall go up first. So with that, the first day's battle occurs. Judah goes out to battle against Benjamin, their brothers, and Benjamin kills 22,000 Israelites. They don't know what to make of this. They go back and inquire the Lord again before a second day of battle. He says, go up. They fight. Benjamin kills 18,000. Puzzled, on a third day, they inquire of the Lord again. This is verses 27 and 28. When they inquire of the Lord, this is where it's explained that the Ark of the Covenant was there in Bethel. Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, so the grandson of the very first high priest, he's ministering before it in those days. And they ask, Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. So they go into battle. And you have this this, uh, style of literature that you see a lot in Judges. We saw it in um, Deborah's case. You see it in the Bible a lot, and it's criticized. It seems like two different battles are being explained or there's some kind of contradiction. But what is happening, and this is very helpful if you're studying the Old Testament in particular, very helpful to know, is the author is going to give us a synopsis of the battle first, and then he's going to give those history buffs that want the details, he's going to give them details as he breaks it down. So what he starts out telling us in the first paragraph, which is uh, verses 29 through 36, is that Israel defeats Benjamin and 25,100 men of Benjamin die. In the next paragraph, which is verses 37 through 48, he breaks down the battle, which I won't go into because it's very detailed and there's just a lot of a lot of details there. Except for one thing, it does tell us that 600 men of Benjamin survive. So that's, that's it. They wipe out the whole tribe of Benjamin, at least the fighting men, including burning down their cities, and only 600 men are left. Now, as we come into chapter 21, Israel starts having regrets. In the bitter aftermath of this, they see a problem. We've just about wiped out uh, one tribe. And Israel is incomplete now. It's supposed to be 12 tribes. Where's Benjamin? It's gone. They've made a couple of oaths that is causing them a problem. But it also leads to this strange solution they come up with. The first oath is recorded in verse 1 of chapter 21. No one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. Now, how are you going to repopulate Benjamin if nobody is allowed to give his daughter in marriage to a member of the tribe of Benjamin? Good question. The second oath is also explained here, and that is uh, later on in verse 5, that anybody who had not come up to Mizpah in that initial gathering described in chapter 20, anybody who did not come up uh, shall be put to death. Now, this actually leads them to one solution. And uh, that's described for us in verses 8 and following. They say, 
who didn't come up to Mizpah? And they discover that no one had come up to the camp from Jabesh Gilead. Jabesh Gilead's not a very well-known place. You're about to realize why. Uh, it's east of the Jordan in the tribe of Manasseh. Maybe they had some kind of connection to Gilead, and that's why they didn't show up at Mizpah with the rest of the armies in this plan for civil war. But they were the ones that didn't show up so they could be um, they could be used in a way to repopulate Benjamin. They were under the ban. They were worthy of death, according to the people. And so 12,000 men of Israel go down to Jabesh-Gilead and kill everybody except for the virgins who were, I guess, eligible for marriage. So they find 400 young virgins who had not known a man, and they bring them to Shiloh, where the tabernacle is, and give them to the 600 remaining members of Benjamin. Now, let me pause here to just think about how ridiculous their morality they're coming up with is. They make this oath, nobody lives who doesn't come up to Mizpah. Meanwhile, in the book of Joshua and in Judges, you read God telling them to go into these pagan lands and put them under a ban for destruction, utterly destroy them, and they don't utterly destroy them. They leave inhabitants in the land. Well, they leave idolatry in the land. But of their own people, they're ready to wipe them out completely, except for the ones that will be useful to them. So they give these 400 virgin daughters of Jabesh Gilead over to the Benjamites, the 600 who are left, and it turns out not to be enough. So they have another bright idea. They're using their own ideas. Don't think God is behind any of this. The only time God has spoken is when he has said, go up against Benjamin. When they ask him, shall we go up? He says, go up. And you'll notice the first two times he said, go up. He didn't say, go up and you'll win. He said, go up. And they're punished as severely as Benjamin is punished. Uh, the first time, what did I say? 20,000 die. The second time, 18,000 die. So they lost almost 40,000 men against Benjamin's mere 26,000. Less Benjamites died than Israelites. The Lord seems to be punishing all of them. They don't realize it. They don't see it that way. The other times they're doing things, they're doing it all on their own without any approval from God. And the writer who's telling us all of these stories is just sitting back and telling us objectively and letting us decide for themselves. I don't know about you, but I think they're making a lot of bad decisions here. So they have a second solution. What are we going to do now that there are not enough women from Jabesh Gilead to repopulate the tribe of Benjamin? Second solution begins in verse 19. Behold, there is a yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, north of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh, and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, Grant them graciously to us, because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle, neither did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty. 
And the people of Benjamin did so, and took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. And they went and returned to their inheritance, and and rebuilt the towns, and lived in them. Hey, we're not breaking our oath to not give our daughters to Benjamin. And we wiped out everybody who didn't show up at Mizpah. And Benjamin gets their daughters. Problem solved. How did they solve their problem? A kidnapping festival. That's what they came up with. We're going to kidnap girls who are dancing at a festival, and we're going to make them marry these Benjamites. Problem solved. I don't know about you. I think that's a lousy solution, but it's an illustration of what the last verse of the book says. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You might think that commentary on the king is a little misplaced because you're thinking about King Saul and even King David and Solomon. But as we said in the last episode, the king that the writer is longing for is the King Jesus. In addition to that, I want to point out that the moral innovations of man always end poorly. The moral ingenuity of man is his worst enemy. You have this example, but you can go into recent history, and time and time again, mankind thinks, I'm going to come up with a solution. I don't need the Bible. I don't need divine guidance. I can come up with a solution. During the Enlightenment of the 17th and 18th centuries in Europe, reason was emphasized over tradition and religion, and science was blossoming. Evolution was bought into as the theory for the origin of man, and the expectation was we're going to make moral progress. We're going to continue to get better and better and better. But if you look back over the last several hundred years, we haven't gotten better. We're still fighting wars. We're still enslaving people, abusing humanity. The problems are just as much here now as they were then. The Bolshevik Revolution stormed against Russia in 1917. Soviet Union took over. Communism was going to be the solution to poverty. Uh, It was going to make humanity blossom and flourish. And the experiment lasted about a hundred years and ended in complete and utter failure. Utopian societies have popped up everywhere only to fail. And so we don't have the answer. The way of man is not in himself, as Jeremiah said. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death, Proverbs 14, 12. But when we look to the Apostle Paul, we see an example of how one can end well. Paul had tried things his own way. He put his confidence in the flesh, as he says in Philippians 3, only to find it working poorly. Jesus changed all of that. He invited the king into his life and had a very different experience than you see in Judges because in his days there was a king and he did not do what was right in his own eyes but did what was right in the Lord's eyes and he describes the way that ends in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verses 6 and following as he writes to Timothy in his farewell letter I'm being poured out as a drink offering And the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. 
I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That's how you end well. Thank you for staying with me throughout this series on the judges. I look forward to getting into something new, so stay tuned, keep listening on Wide Margins.